from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Jeff Irby. I'm currently serving as an elder on our session here at the church. Would you join me in our call to worship? I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God girded me with strength and made my way safe. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand has supported me. The Lord lives. Blessed be our rock, and exalted be the God of our salvation. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25 on page 654 in the Old Testament. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred years will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy. On my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which can be found on page 219 of the New Testament portion of your pew Bibles. Let us continue to listen for God's word for us this morning. Come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Everlasting God, open up your word for us this morning, that in encountering your truth, our hearts might be transformed as we come to hear and believe your gracious promises for your people and all of your creation. Amen. It seems to me that there's a lot of talk these days about the health of the church, and the diagnosis doesn't look good. In fact, what I hear said time and time again, whether in seminary faculty meetings, at church conferences, or in reading Christian magazines and blogs, the refrain I hear again and again is, the church is dying. Now, these words are often uttered in a matter-of-fact kind of way, as if it was obvious to all that the church was on its deathbed. And I have to admit, the patient is exhibiting several troubling symptoms. There is, for instance, the issue of declining membership numbers. In 1972, 28% of adult U.S. citizens identified as being a member of a mainline church. And by mainline, we mean they went to Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, Episcopalian, and so on and so forth churches. So 28% in 1972. By 2007, that number had dropped to 18.1% of all U.S. adults. And in 2017, that number is at 12%. Our own denomination, the PCUSA, is not immune to such trends. Since 2005, the denomination has reported losing almost one-third of its total number of members throughout America. Or we might consider the troubling stats about the rise of the nuns. Now, I don't mean the N-U-N-S's who taught me Sunday school when I was a Catholic boy growing up. Rather, I mean the N-O-N-E-S's. That is a shorthand way of referring to those people who, when on a survey, are asked to indicate their religious affiliation, check the box for none. According to a recent Pew Research Center study, there's been a sharp increase in the number of nuns, uh, of adult U.S. citizens, in the last 10 years. Yet what is even more striking is the age distribution of those nuns. While only one in 10 adults over the age of 65 identify as being religiously unaffiliated, one in three adults under 30 check the box for none. What this means is not only that fewer people are going to church, but that church interest is disproportionately low among younger adults. Now, on top of all of these stats, many of us might add our own personal anecdotes about the rising tide of secularism in our world. Or maybe we have stories that seem to suggest that the church just isn't what it used to be. I wish I could tell you that this was fake news. 
I wish I could assure you that the patient had been misdiagnosed and that its health is better than ever before, but I can't. But what I can say this morning is that despite these facts, we desperately need to leave aside this talk about the church dying. We desperately need to find new ways of describing the state of the church in the world today. And I invite this new refrain, this new language, not because I have some sense of naive optimism that everything is okay and all will end well, but rather I want to invite us to leave aside this language about the church is dying, precisely because I believe that how we talk about a problem has everything to do with how we go about solving it. Several years back, a team of Georgia Tech engineers set out to develop a paintbrush that had bristles made of synthetic fibers rather than the normal horsehair bristles that you would use in a paintbrush. Now, the upside of doing so would be great because these synthetic fibers were both cheaper to produce and longer lasting than the horsehairs. Great idea. There was only one problem. These synthetic fiber bristle paintbrushes simply didn't paint very well. When you would go to spread paint around on a wall, it would leave these gloppy, streaky marks. It just didn't look good. So like, a good, uh, like good engineers, the team set out to solve the problem. They tried many different technological solutions. First, they tried adding more synthetic bristles. By packing them in more tightly, there was a hope that it would spread the paint a little more evenly but that didn't work. And then they thought, well, maybe the problem is the synthetic fibers are too thick or too thin, so they adjusted the diameter of the bristles. And that didn't make a difference either. Then my favorite solution is they actually engineered these little synthetic bristles with little split ends because they knew that horse hairs, much like human hairs, have split ends, and they thought, well, maybe that helps uh, us paint better. But none of these things worked. Finally, a junior engineer on the team had an idea. He said, maybe the issue, maybe the issue is not with our technology, but with how we are thinking about the problem in the first place. You see, in all the conversations of this engineering team, they always had talked about the paintbrush as a type of mop. That is, a paintbrush worked like a mop. That is, the end of the bristles just moved around the paint, much like the end of a mop moves around dust or water on the floor. And this is why they focused all of their technological energy on re-engineering the end of the bristles. But as the junior engineer pointed out, paintbrushes don't work like mops, they work like pumps. The way paint gets spread on the wall is that when you push the paintbrush against the wall, you bend the bristles, and as the bristles bend, the paint is pressed through like a pump the little gaps between the bristles. That's how the paint gets on the wall. Once they started describing the problem in the right way, the solution quickly became evident. They realized that the problem with synthetic care fibers was that they didn't bend in the same way as horsehairs. So if you could engineer a synthetic fiber that was more flexible, you could solve all of the problems. And this is, in fact, exactly what they did. If you think about it, this story is not about engineering, with all due respect to the engineers in the room. The story is not about engineering, it's about language. For you see, until the engineers had the right language to describe how a paintbrush works, it works like a pump, not a mop. Until you had the right language, they weren't able to begin to arrive at effective solutions. 
The same, I think, is true about how we talk about the health of the church. When we use the language the church is dying, we end up framing the problem in a way that ultimately does not lead to effective and faithful solutions. And so let me highlight three reasons why I think this is so and why I think we need to leave aside this language about the church dying. First, from a theological perspective, to say the church is dying is to misunderstand what the church is in the first place. In the New Testament, the term ecclesia or church is not defined as a building or even a local congregation. The term is defined as the body of Christ. The body of Christ is something that exists beyond institutions, beyond denominations. It includes the whole communion of saints that Christ has called, gathered, and redeemed both past, present, and future. In fact, according to John Calvin, that great reformer, the church can be said to exist not where we find a building with a steeple, but rather wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and wherever the sacraments are rightly administered. Thus, friends, the church is bigger than us. The church is bigger than this beautiful sanctuary on the corner of 16th and Peachtree. The church is bigger than the mainline church in America. I think the refrain, the church is dying, misses this point. For instance, even as some denominations today are declining, others are flourishing. Consider the explosion of, of new non-denominational churches in the past 30 years in this country. In this time, non-denominationalism has quickly become the largest Protestant denomination, not only in terms of the number of new churches, but also in terms of the number of members, many of whom grew up or were once members of mainline churches. Now, we might raise questions about this. This might pique our curiosity and, and lead to certain theological discussions. But my point is that even as things are shifting in terms of where folks go to church on Sunday mornings, there are still an enormous number of Americans who worship on Sunday mornings. Similar trends are evident globally. In Latin America and in Africa, we have seen some decline in membership in Catholic churches, but at the same time, we've seen an explosion of Pentecostalism. There are now over 300 million Pentecostals just in Latin America and Africa alone. And in China, do you know what the fastest growing religion is in China? It's not Islam, it's not Buddhism, it's not Hinduism, it's Protestant Christianity. Friends, the church is not dying because the church as the body of Christ is alive and well in the world today. In many cases now, these worshiping communities look very different than Presbyterian or other mainline churches here in America. They take different forms and styles that are unfamiliar to us. They come to us in different languages and cultures than we know. But we must remember that the changing shape of the body of Christ is not, in fact, a sign of morbidity. It's a sign of vitality. And thanks be to God for that. Now, the second problem with the church's dying mantra is that it can skew how we approach ministry. For I fear that if we grant that the church is a terminally ill patient, and I think that's what we do grant when we say the church is dying, we think of it as a terminally ill patient, when we do so, I think we run the risk of approaching ministry as a form of palliative care. 
Now, in medical terms, palliative care refers to a type of treatment plan that focuses on relieving pain or alleviating discomfort when an underlying uh, problem is incurable. And sometimes palliative care is the best option in terms of caring for loved ones who are terminally ill. But when we end up thinking about ministry as palliative care, I think we're led down the wrong track. Because when we think of ministry as palliative care, we focus all of our energy on one of two things. Either we focus our energy on lamenting that the church just isn't what it used to be, or we focus our energy on making very minor adjustments that try to preserve our existing programs as we've always known them. But what if we change the metaphor? What if the church wasn't a terminally ill patient? What if our language changed? What if we talked about the church, say, as a field lying fallow? Now, as any farmer knows, a fallow field is not a dead field. A fallow field is one that just lies dormant for a very small period of time. And, and during this time of dormancy, farmers don't just sit back and lament the fact that they don't have enough crops. During this time of dormancy, of lying fallow, farmers get to work doing the difficult job of nurturing and cultivating that soil so that in the next growing season, it gives forth an even more bountiful harvest than it had before. Friends, what would it look like to think about ministry in terms of cultivating the spiritual soil of our community? Or what if we said the church is like a lump of clay being remolded by a potter? If we lived into this metaphor, I think we wouldn't be so anxious about the passing away of, of forms of clay or forms of the church that we once knew. Rather, we would have confidence that God is at work at the potter's wheel, creating new vessels, right? We would roll up our sleeves. We would get our hands dirty in that clay slip. We would participate in that fashioning of new vessels, of new forms of this faith that we hold so dearly. Friends, we need to leave aside this language about the church's dying because there are other metaphors out there that can lead to more effective and productive and faithful approaches to ministry. Now, the third and final problem I want to highlight regarding our anxieties about the church dying is a historical one. For it seems that this phrase, the church is dying, overlooks the fact that about every 500 years or so, the church goes through what scholar Phyllis Tickle describes as a great rummage sale. That is, these periods in which old, established forms get pulled out of the attic or pulled out of the basement. They're cleaned out and are replaced by something more vibrant, something new, something fresh. The first such rummage sale occurred around 500 CE, or a little bit later, when the fusion of the church and the state under Constantine was broken apart when the Roman Empire began to disintegrate. Out, out of this rubble emerged a monastic tradition that worked alongside and even outside of the church to revitalize Christian spirituality in a way that the church had never known in its first 500 years. 500 years later, around 1054, the rummage sale involved the split up of the Eastern and Western 
churches. Out of this great schism emerged the Eastern Orthodox Church, a tradition that preserved rich liturgical and artistic elements of Christianity for millions of believers even to this day. And 500 years after that, in the early 1500s, we had, of course, the Protestant Reformation, in which once dominant aspects of Catholicism, its theology and its practice, began to give way to the rise of Reformed churches in Switzerland, in Germany, in England, in Scotland, and ultimately in North America. Now, Phyllis Tickle reminds us of two important aspects of this historical once every 500 years pattern that we see on display. First, after every rummage sale, the new form of church that emerged experienced radical growth and vitality. That is, something beautiful and amazing emerged out of these rummage sales. And second, in each rummage sale, that previous, uh, the previously established forms of church did not completely disappear, but they themselves were revitalized and reformed into something new. What this means is that even if we are, in fact, in the midst of another rummage sale, and if you've been doing the math in the pews, 500, 1,000, 1,500, you know that we're due for a good rummage sale any day now. Even if this is the case, it is not the cause for the sort of despair that I hear from those who say the church is dying. While the forms of Christianity many of us have come to know might indeed be changing, we should remain hopeful about the future of the church if for no other reason than the God we believe in has a pretty good historical track record of bringing something new out of these rummage sales. This, in fact, seems to be the message of the passage we read from the book of Isaiah. In this text, the Israelites had just returned from years of exile in, in Babylon. Now, the exile itself was a type of rummage sale, since during that period, almost every established, visible form of, of, of how Israel exercised its faith in God had gone away. Gone was the, the, the Davidic king. Gone was the monarchy. Gone was the temple. Gone was the hope that Jerusalem would always stand as the place where God was most present in the world. Now, as the, as the crisis ends and the Israelites go back to their land, the prophet Isaiah doesn't come in and say, friends, long for the way things used to be. Isaiah doesn't say, try to recreate every form of faith that you once had. No, the prophet says, uh, he urges the people to place their hope in a God who was about to do something new in their midst. The challenge for us, I believe, at such a time as this, is to join Isaiah in not bemoaning the loss of what once, of what once was, but to get busy wondering and dreaming and praying about what might emerge. Maybe this is exactly what this church is trying to do when we think about long-range strategic plans. Maybe we long for God to do something new when we see community ministry through the lens of social entrepreneurship and economic development. Maybe we're, we're trying to lean in to, to what's emerging when we begin to think uh, about servant leadership and when we begin to strengthen global partnerships or reimagine Christian education through media and in creative forms that engage lay people where they're at. We might not know what new forms of Christianity will emerge, and we might well try some things that don't end up working. But my hope is that we, as a church, continue to lean into the promise that God is, in fact, doing something new, even in the midst of this rummage sale. 
Friends, we must leave aside this talk about the church dying, not because we deny certain symptoms of ill health, but because we believe the church is the body of Christ and that that body is alive and well and indeed can never die. We be because we believe that there are better metaphors out there to frame the work of ministry that is before us, and because we know from history that when old established forms of the church fade away, new vibrant forms of Christianity emerge. So, if we're doing away with this old refrain, the church is dying, what new refrain will take its place? I want to suggest that a key slogan from the Reformation just might provide one good answer. Even more so than sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Even more so than sola fide, by faith alone. The rallying cry of the Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. The church reformed and always reforming. For the hope of Calvin and Luther and Knox and Swingley was not to create a reformed church that would be the once-for-all alternative to Catholicism. Rather, their goal was to create a reforming church, a church that was open to being continually transformed in its, in its forms and in expressions by God's Spirit in response to the ever-changing needs of the world. So perhaps, perhaps it is that the best way we can celebrate the 500th year anniversary, which we've been remembering through so many things here at First Pres. Perhaps the best way we can celebrate the legacy of the Reformation is to leave aside all of this talk about the church's dying and to get busy becoming a church reformed and always reforming. Amen. Friends, as we go out from this place this morning, let us be a church reformed and always reforming. Let us be a people who place our hope in a God who is about to do something new, not just through the forms of the church, but in our own hearts and minds. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that we might be transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.